Welcome to The Lex Factor, a lawfully good podcast where we'll brief you on the business of law so you can build a better practice and capture more billable hours. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Lex Factor. It's your host, Lauren, here. And your co-host, Brad. Oh, thank you. We're still clapping for We me. are. I actually, I clapped for Randy last time since you weren't here, but I figured it's probably the right thing to do. I thought you only did that for me. No, but anyway, your old news. We got big news today. Big news. The Lex Factor has officially come full circle, and we have our very first guest back on the show. So, you guys, welcome CEO from Lexicon, Scott Brennan. There we All go, right. Brennan. Thanks, guys. That's right. <laughs> welcome back. Yeah. It's good, good to, to have back. you back. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about the evolution of the Lex Factor so far? Well, as you know, I listen to every episode pretty religiously, usually within a week of uh, of when they drop. So I, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed listening to the evolution of the show. Cool. He is definitely number one fan. He is number one fan. We're going to get him shirt, foam finger, everything. Everything. So I think first and foremost, um, do you want to fill everybody in? Just, you know, what what's new since then? Maybe talk about Amelia a little bit, <laughs> something. Or we can talk practice management, whatever. Yeah, so uh, Amelia is a cat that uh, that we rescued. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, I, I have a house in Charlotte that has people that live in it. And then I commute to, to St. Louis every week to do my work. My son rescued a kitten that was in the backyard. I wanted to give the cat away. I I lined up people that would take the cat and then they didn't want to give the cat away. So we agreed to keep the cat. And then like three days later, my wife announced that she's actually allergic to cats. And now I need to commute back and forth from Charlotte to St. Louis with a kitten and a cat carrier. (laughs) Which wow. is what I do. So now Amelia is my cat, and she she lives with me in my in my St. Louis apartment five days a week, and then we we go and visit the other house uh, every weekend. <laughs> so I have to ask, which home does the cat like the most? Can uh, you tell? I think she actually likes Here. being in the apartment better because Ooh. there's less there's less commotion. The the Charlotte house has you know kids and dogs and. You know, uncles and all kinds of people are constantly floating around. <laughs> there's no, <laughs> there's no peace. So if, if she's in a, if she's in like a spazzy, I want to fight mode, then she really <laughs> likes being in Charlotte because the the dogs are always happy to to wrestle around yeah, with her. That's true. Wow. But, but she wants to sleep or relax or you know, she have likes a normal hanging out life with that's dad. Here. Well, yeah, I, I think I'm her Im- favorite for sure. Clearly, there's obviously. no doubt. Obviously. The important part of this story is that you rescued a cat. We this I is mean, very that, true. That, rescue a cat. He yes. did say he didn't want it, but we're gonna cut that <laughs> yeah, part out. Yeah, that that we're you just know, gonna cut. We but. used to. I used to call uh, for the first three weeks. <laughs> I named her Kitty McLeaven soon. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> that is great. Mm-hmm. But clearly she uh you know stayed. She yeah, she, 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 she won she her, heart her place. Over. She 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 earned her place in the house and oh, now God. now her her name is Amelia. And she's the lexicon mascot now. Um and she could fit in the palm of your hand, right? Not anymore. No, but when, she could. When we first got her, she was so she was unable to actually eat um solid oh. food. We had to feed her with a medicine dropper. Wow. Oh, wow. And you're how tall? Like 6'4"? Yeah, 6'4". Okay. I'm, I'm painting the picture. So if you've ever seen a 6'4 tall man on the plane with a kitten in the palm of his hand, that was Scott. Yes, yeah. the, the carrier was actually a Happy Mail box. Oh, that's, that's, that's even why, cuter, yeah, though. would pop its little head out. It was that's Everybody adorable. thought it was just a snack for the plane oh. ride, but it turned out to be a support cat. I don't even know if we can top that, do we? No. That's, should, we, should we talk practice management I a little so. bit? I think so. I think so. 
So that's equally as important. It is. It's why we're here. So um, we did, you know, with Scott on the show today, we really wanted to dive into the stupidest mistakes, you know, firms use from, from a business perspective when they're managing their firm. Yeah, absolutely. We work with lots of law firms and we talk to a lot of law firms and, and there are a lot of recurring themes that, that we uncover when, when we speak to firms about what are they trying to do when they're growing to grow their practice, right? How, how do they make their firm more profitable? How do they recognize more revenue? How do they take more home at the end of the day? And, and it's amazing how we get these recurring themes mm-hmm. and, and, and some, some apply to smaller firms, some apply to, to large firms, but they all work to some extent, for every law firm out there. So in, in keeping with the theme of, of the Lex Factor is here to help lawyers make more money and grow a successful practice, I thought it'd be great if we could talk through kind of the top five dumbest things that mm-hmm. lawyers do when trying to run a practice. Yeah, totally agree. I feel so, like we need some kind of theme music for the top five. Or at least right, a drum roll. A drum roll. Can that's you do all, that? No, that's you. I'm, I'm, I'm not good. Oh, that's good. Good job. See, I told you you could do it. Have confidence. Are we going in order? No, the number no, one. Number three. <laughs> no, number one. <laughs> yes, number one. Take it away, Scott. Number one is you're going to think it's boring because it's so obvious, but it's not tracking time in real time. Study after study is showing if you wait till the end of the week, you are losing money. Mm-hmm. Right? I think and it's up to 50 to 75% we saw. Yeah, I think it's 26% for one week. And if you wait till the end of the month, it's up to 50% inaccuracy. And that can hit you in a couple ways, right? And so you might say, well, I, I keep my thumb on the scale a little bit, so I know that I'm not under underbilling, which ethically is probably a questionable decision. But also what, what it's going to do is you're going to have clients now questioning the accuracy of your billing. And did you really spend two hours reviewing that document? I can't believe it took you to, that long to do that. And so you're going to end up with dissatisfied customers or you're going to have to start going back and writing off charges for goodwill, mm-hmm. right? So if you're in a business where you've got clients who you work with regularly, you're going to be writing those charges down because you underrepresented or overrepresented the time. If you underrepresent the time, you're just giving money away. It's not that hard. If you have a good practice management system, a lot of them, like ours has got a timer built into it. Mm-hmm. Lots of them do. Just keep track of your time. Worst case, write it down on a piece of paper and enter your time daily. Keep a log. Don't wait until Friday or don't wait till the every other week deadline for, for your filing, whatever your firm's rules are. If you do that, you are just mm-hmm. losing money hand over fist. So what about overbilling too? That's a, on the flip side, that's another Yeah, really overbilling is it. Overbilling, the problem with overbilling is you're going to have angry customers. So even if customers don't leave the firm cuz you're overbilling, you're going to be writing those those expenses down and you're not going to capture the full value of what you've probably earned. Scott, do you find this to be an issue mainly with newer attorneys no. or is this something that's good for everybody? A this reminder. is good. This is good for everybody. I don't care whether you work for an Amla 50 firm or if you're a solo practitioner, you need to track your time as close to real time as possible. Mm-hmm. End of day, worst case, you need to be logging your time against the matter. Again, a good practice management solution will actually prompt you to enter that time. It'll allow you to track and run a timer while you're working on things. Even if that isn't a solution that you've gotten and one you're, for whatever reason, not interested in, write it down every day. Mm-hmm. Write it down real time. And, and you will capture 
a far greater percentage of your actual work than if you rely on your memory. Memories are unreliable. And that's just human nature, you know. And so thinking about it a little deeper, Scott, how long really before you start to see a difference in your revenue? You know, once you start getting better time tracking practices, you're tracking more real time, you're hopefully tracking every day. How long is it going to take before you start to see those efficiencies come in? Well, that's what's beautiful about it. It's basically immediately, mm-hmm. right? So if you think about it, if you go two weeks and you're 20% inaccurate, you would have billed, call it 50 hours to keep the math easy. You just gave up five hours, right? Or 10 hours, of, of time at 20%. Mm-hmm. You know, that 10 hours, if you were tracking every day, that's an hour a day that you've lost, that you're now, you're now making up. You're not working any harder and you're not doing anything unethical. You're just more accurately representing the amount of time it took to do your job. Mm-hmm. You can always choose to write down the amount of work that you've done. If you look at it later and you, and you think, gosh, you know, it really did take me two hours to review that document, but I feel like I should have been a little faster. You can write it down, but at least you've got an accurate record of what time went into doing that work. So what about fixed fees? You know, that's just, it's taking more time out of my day to track time against fixed fees, knowing that it doesn't count, right? Why do I need to track time against fixed fees? So that's number two on my list is not tracking time against fixed fees or not tracking time on contingent fees, right? So if I do a contingent case or if I'm doing a fixed fee or a flat fee bill, it is shocking to me how many attorneys I speak to who will say, well, why do I care? You know what? I give that work to my paralegal and because I'm already paying the paralegal her salary, it doesn't really matter how long it takes for her to do that work or for him to do that work. And that's just patently wrong. (laughs) And it's wrong in in a lot of ways, right? So first, you're setting pricing on those fixed fee events. And if they're repeatable, you, know, you want to know how much time really goes into each of those types of matters. The only way you're going to know that is how much time does your staff work against that matter type. What you will probably learn is if you do three or four different types of matters pretty regularly, and they're all on a fixed fee basis, I'd almost be willing to guarantee you that one of those matter types you're underpricing and you're losing money it's close to a zero margin business for you. I'd almost guarantee you that you have at least one other that you're overcharging. And you'd say, well, that's great. I'm making more more money. Maybe, but maybe you're also out of market from a pricing perspective. And you want to know, is this just 50%, 60% margin business? Or if I were to shave it down a little bit, could I do twice or three times as much of this type of work in my office? So that's one thing that you want to figure out is, am I out of market from a revenue perspective and am I losing money on anything? The other, the other thing is you're still paying for your staff's time. And so you want to understand, do I have too much staff? Do I need more people doing this type of work? Because it's spilling over into other attorney associates as they're tracking their time. So not tracking time on a fixed fee matter, you're doing yourself a massive disservice as it comes to the profitability of your firm, and whether you're investing the right amount of work in advertising for the right type of matter or not. Mm-hmm. Number three on the list is so important to me. We've had, Lauren, so many people on the podcast. I knew you were going to It is. It's all it about culture. It, it, it does. Is. It excites me. So we're lucky to have the list ahead of time. Number three <laughs> is not paying attention to firm culture. So, Scott, maybe elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, so... 
for a lot of attorneys, if you start out as a solo practitioner and you've grown your practice, you're doing exactly what you set out to do, right? I'm, I hung my shingle. I grew my practice. I hired an associate. I hired another associate. I've now got maybe 20 or 30 attorneys working for me, probably somewhere around 10 paralegals. Guess what? You've never put any real thought into. How do I want these people to behave? What is it that represents my firm's culture? It goes beyond just let's enforce everybody does a charitable event once a quarter or, or that everybody has to go to the staff party you know, that, that happens annually. It's really about how is it that we work together? How do we treat each other? And how does that then translate into the experience that our clients receive from this firm? Right. So are you going to have the kind of firm where your clients believe that if your attorneys and your associates and your staff tell them, we will get this to you by the end of the day, do they believe you, right? Is, is it your firm's culture to live up to your promises? And then, you know, if you say we treat each other with respect as a team, is that true? Or is it just words, words that you throw out because it's, it's kind of topical to say, you know, we're going to treat our people well? It, it's so important, and it starts from the top, right? It starts from the firm principal, it starts from the managing partners, and flows down, right? What's our culture? What do we stand for? And, and it gets even more important as you move out of a single office, right? You can control as the principal. You can have a huge influence over the behavior and the way people interact with each other in a single location. Because you know, if you're going there every day and other people are there, you know, you see that behavior and you've got the opportunity to course correct. You start getting into multiple locations and, and locations that become geographically dispersed. It's really easy for a different culture than the one that you set out to, to create to grow organically in a location that maybe is a little bit outside of you know, your usual jurisdiction, your usual route. And, and so if you're, if you're a New York-based firm, and you've got a solid culture in your Manhattan office, what's your Santa Monica culture like? What's your Denver culture like? And if you're not making a deliberate decision and enforcing that and making sure that the team is involved in building that culture, you, you probably don't have a uniform culture across your, your firm. Yeah. Right. It is so important because it's not just the culture, but your culture then becomes your brand. It becomes your marketing for what sets you apart and mm -hmm. in, you know, distinguishing you from other law firms. So it is so important and so easily overlooked as law firms start to grow. Yeah, totally agree. And like you said, Brad, I really do think this is one of the most common areas that is overlooked in the legal industry. And we actually talked about it a few months ago, too. So culture and how you treat your employees actually has a direct influence on how happy they are. Mm -hmm. And at the end yeah. of the day, you know, if you're listening us to us right now and it just went in one ear and out the other, the thing to remember, though, how happy your employees are, that actually has a direct influence, too, on them serving your clients. So your clients mm -hmm. are going to know if your employees are not happy. And in turn, that's going to affect your business. So if you're, you know, culture, great, sounds good, not my biggest priority, it should be because it's going to affect your revenue too. Yeah. And, and it, it's really important because the practice of law is a very personal, it's a personal thing, right? People go to a lawyer because they yeah. have something important to Divorces, them that they need taken care of. Yeah. Right. Even business transaction, buying a business, selling mm -hmm. a business, entering into a large agreement with somebody, it's important, and it tends to take place 
either face-to-face or with a lot of direct contact over the phone or over Zoom. And we run at Lexicon, we have a call center, and we have trained agents who answer the phone on behalf of law firms to schedule those initial appointments and, and get potential clients into the door for our customer firms. Even in the call center environment, and, and as a consumer, you, you probably have noticed this too, you know when the person answering the phone has got a smile on their face, when they're actually happy to be there doing their job, and you know when they don't. Mm-hmm. Right? You really do. Like How many of us have had an experience where you make a call to a call center, you talk to somebody, you know that they're in a bad mood. You know that they hate their job, they hate their life, and they probably hate you. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's like the DMV. <laughs> All over we, again. We joke about that, but the DMV has a culture, yeah. right? And that culture is you're here because you have no choice. <laughs> right. And, and because of that, I don't need to be happy and my employees don't need to be happy. And now maybe we're maligning the DMV a little bit, but you don't want that culture to be the one that your law firm has. And it starts, it starts with the principal, it goes to the partners, it rolls to the associates, and it, and it rolls to the staff. And if, if the people answering your phones are unhappy, that's an impression that you're giving to your, to your prospective clients or your current clients and it's going to influence how they think about your firm. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm glad you brought up the smiling. When we had last month's Lexicon webinar, Sarah said the same thing. Just smile when you answer the phone. Right. You know, Monday morning, next week, pick up the phone, smile when you answer and see how it feels, see how it sounds different and see that that reaction you get. You do get a big difference. You know, one thing that I've been I was seeing. Just smiling. You, you were. Know, I could yeah. feel it. <laughs> um, one thing that I've seen on LinkedIn just recently, obviously we all get people that are reaching out to us to, you know, they offer different services, you know, different companies looking for business there on LinkedIn, you know, making those connections. They've actually made a transition to instead of just reaching out raw and saying, hey, you know, I offer these types of services, you know, are you interested? They're actually posting videos now. So they have the people, they hold up cards, they have your name on them, Mm -hmm. they post a video. And I was reading this article and said there's a 40% increase in returned contact information to that company because it's a more personable approach and you can see them and the smile and you can kind of feel that culture, you know, that that they're going to help you there with you throughout the transaction. So it was it was interesting approach. And I can definitely see that not to go off on a tangent, but I was actually reading something similar not too long ago. And just to talk marketing for a second, if you're able to use videos like that, again, this is not about the client experience and culture. But if you are able to use videos like that, whether it's on social media, your website, it actually increases conversion too. Mm-hmm. So even, you know, the video itself may not be personalized to that consumer, but it is a more personalized experience. So video across the board, whether it's just through an email to get somebody's attention or even, you know, on your website, it really does help. Well, you have to build that trust and it really does. And it all starts though back with the culture, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that you're happy where you are, uh, what you believe in and, and conveying that through the video. Yeah, definitely. All right, Scott, let's jump into number four. And this one is interesting to me because I feel like this is something we haven't really talked about on this show yet. So I'm, I'm curious to hear what you're going to say, but um, let's talk partners. Yeah, so a huge mistake that we see firms wandering into this area without a lot of forethought is too many partners. It becomes a crutch. If you think about the firms that you've worked in, especially the larger firms, you'll see somebody maybe is running a practice area. They're, they're a real rainmaker. They're, they're doing great work. And you don't want them to leave, right? And, and you're concerned that maybe they're going to walk away and they're going to take a book of business with them. It is this immediate 
gut reaction that I think a lot of firms have that say, you know what we should do? We should make that attorney a partner. Let's give them some equity, have them buy in, and now they're a partner, and now they'll never leave. There, there's a lot of problems associated with that. So the first thing is in almost every case, you will see the number of billable hours for that attorney drop the second they make partner. And there's reasons for that. Some of them are you may have an expectation that partners are doing a little more glad handing. They're out there representing the firm more. That maybe that instead of doing more billing, they become more the face of their practice area and they're more interested in, in drumming up potential new business than actually billing the work. That may work for a period of time and it may work if you have a limited number of partners because you do need people out in the community acting as brand ambassadors and, and business developers. If you have too many people doing that, you've taken your highest billers and you've taken away the billing aspect. That means there is less money coming into your firm. You're actually losing money by promoting somebody. That's item number one. Number two is, if they're an equity partner, you've now diluted yourself, right? There's more equity leaving the firm, more cash is being dispersed across all of the equity partners. The reason you made that person an equity partner to begin with was to retain them. If there's five people splitting up the profits of the firm, that's probably a, a serious inducement to stay. If 50% of your attorneys are partners, their share in terms of real dollars is probably so small, it's not much better than an annual bonus would be at any other firm. You've lost the whole reason you made them a partner to begin with. On top of it, you've now got more people who are trying to have a say in the operation of your firm. There's lots of great reasons to have equity partners. You know, you've got aligned interests. You've got people who should be thinking about the, the health of the firm. The flip side is you've got a lot of people thinking about how much money am I going to take out today? How close am I to retirement? Do I really want the firm to make this investment in a new practice area? Do I really want the firm to maybe experiment with some more aggressive marketing, which is going to benefit the firm in five years, but my retirement window is three? As a short-time investor in this company, expecting that I'm going to take my money and run before the, the benefits of this program pay out, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no to innovation. I'm going to say no to investment that has less than you know, a, a short-term uh, payback or ROI. And, uh, and I'm going to try to influence others in the firm to also not vote to make that, you know, to make those, those investment decisions. That's a big problem. You think about where we, where we were 18 months ago and how many firms were arguing against having a central document management system, a cloud-based practice management system. Um, how many firms didn't even have the ability to do a Zoom or, or a webinar with their clients and potential clients because they didn't want to put the cash outlay in into the business and they didn't want to do it because they had people who were too concerned about their retirement window and what that ROI was. So I'm not saying partners are always bad, but you get too many partners in, you begin to, to drain the revenues awfully quickly. And I, I have talked to more firms than you would think where you really have more than a 50% ratio of partners to associates. Wow. And think about what that does to a firm's culture. And it also creates this expectation that I've put my time in and now half the people around me are already partners. How come I'm not a partner too? And the people who are actually billing become more at risk. 
Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, too many partners, too many problems. <laughs> right. I could definitely see that and tying it back to the previous one with culture. If you did not have a strong, firm culture in your organization and then you had partner after partner with their own ideas, it's just going to splinter the organization because everybody's going to be leading in their own ways too. Yeah. So and at that point, your, your firm's culture is we have lots of cultures that are driven by whoever the practice area lead is. Right. Wow. Am I going to be the one to call it out? Did anybody just hear Scott like rapping Mo Partners more problems? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say it. More money, more problems. I heard Take it. Take it away, Scott. No, I'm just kidding. So is there is there like a sweet spot for partners, you know, percentage standpoint? It is going to depend on the type of law you practice. It's going to depend on are you acquiring other firms? And, and so you're going to take principles of other firms and make them partners in your firm as part of an earnout. I don't think there's like a one-size-fits-all approach, but overall, your strategy should not be how quickly can I get a bunch of partners on into my firm? Your strategy should be how do I intelligently promote people to be partners as practice area leads who have a unique skill set that aren't going to be dilutional to my value? All right, Brad, take it away with all number right. five. Wrap well, it up. Take I know. it home. Well, I really like number five. I won't give it all away. I'll, I'll <laughs> leave that up to Scott. But I learned early on in my career that you are not the expert in everything. You need to reach out. You need to surround yourself with that, even if it's other companies, other people, because you certainly cannot be the expert in every aspect of your business. Mm-hmm. So with that, Scott, take us into number five. Yeah, sure. It's trying to do it all in-house. And it starts out with with frugality, right? So again, if you're somebody who is very entrepreneurial, you started out with, as a solo practitioner, maybe a couple of people that went in and, and started your own firm. You didn't have a ton of money, right? And, and you were bootstrapping it. And so you wanted to make sure every dollar you put in was going to be productive. And that meant you weren't going to outsource. You were going to use your cousin to make your, your website and and you were going to hire a receptionist. And then that receptionist, as you grew, maybe became your head of HR, even though maybe you know, the receptionist has no actual background in, a, in HR. Um, <laughs> but they were there and they were doing it. And then also maybe that same person's your billing person. And so you've got people, because you had this fractional, you couldn't afford to hire a qualified billing person because you're only sending out maybe a couple hundred invoices a month. Right. And so you'd think, well, gosh, you know, all in, I'm going to have to spend 40 grand for a billing clerk. That's really hard to justify given how much money we actually have and the, and the volume of bills we have. But I want to control it. I want to be able to come and touch the money every day. And, and so I'm going to have the receptionist become my billing person. You know, over time, what, what you find out is that you've accumulated people doing tasks that they, they don't really have the background or the training to do. And you start to accumulate these fixed costs in the form of employees who are working 40 hours a week, whether they're qualified to do the job or not. And so rather than just going out and and either making the receptionist your billing expert or having somebody that, that has no background in HR do your human resources, hire an expert that understands how to do those things and and have them charge you either on a by bill by consult, by our basis, right? And so the idea of doing it all yourself because it's cheaper in the long run is probably not that much cheaper. In fact, it might be more expensive than using a fractional accountant 
than using a fractional billing clerk, you know, outsourcing outsourcing inbound phone calls and customer service to a professional company rather than, than trying to have a single person call center. All of those things are are really difficult to manage, but the ROI, I'm convinced that the ROI is always there. If you go with a quality partner who knows what they're doing, it will be far cheaper for you in the long run to pay somebody a couple bucks a minute to answer the phones and schedule your appointments than, than hiring a one-person call center and then expecting them to do a bunch of stuff when the phone's not ringing. Yeah, I think I'm glad you brought that one up because I think that's an easy one too. It makes sense. You know, virtual receptionist, you have somebody answering your phone full time in the office and you probably don't have the phone ringing all day, every day. You know, this person takes vacation, they get sick, you're strapped, you're answering the phone at that point in time and that's taking time away from your clients. And so, you know, virtual receptionists, uh, client intake, customer service, like you mentioned, Scott, I mean, you pay by the minute. Right. So they're there when your firm is open, when you need them. And if you get 20 phone calls a day, you know, two minutes each, that's all you're paying for as opposed to thirty-five, $40,000 a year for someone to sit at the desk. And, you know, obviously it's a nice, it's nice to have somebody there when clients come in, but there's somebody else at your firm that could be doing that too when you're outsourcing these calls. Yeah. And, and it's not just that, Lauren, but now imagine that eight of those calls come in at once because you're running an ad on the radio mm-hmm. and it's a direct response phone call, right? And so mm-hmm. they hear your ad, or eight people who want to give you their money call you at one time. Uh-huh. Your one receptionist isn't going to be able to answer yeah, that's a good point. eight calls. But if you're outsourcing to a, to a company that understands how to handle calls coming in for lawyers and is properly staffed, they can handle eight calls coming in at once with no problem. Mm-hmm. Right. I think one key thing that I want to bring back to the front that you said, Scott, was quality partner. And I think that's critically important for when people are partnering with outsourced companies is somebody that has experience in your specific area that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. I think that's important also that they, you know, trust and you can build that relationship. What are your thoughts on that? A couple things, Brad. So first, this, this idea, which feels new in the practice of law, is not new in any other industry. Think about when you go to see your doctor, they have outsourced anything that they don't view as mission critical mm-hmm. for their doctor's office. If you go to a manufacturer, if you go to a car manufacturer, you know, that manufacturer doesn't make the seats, they don't make the airbags, they probably don't make the batteries, they don't make the tires. What they've said is my job is to design a car, build a frame, and then assemble it mm-hmm. in a way that the customer wants. You want to make sure that you go with a quality supplier when you do that, whether you're buying seats for an automotive plant or you're, you're buying call center support for a law firm or billing support for a law firm. You, you want to make sure that your partner knows what they're doing. They can prove they know what they're doing. So they have a track record of doing it for others. They're transparent. They're willing to show you metrics, share with you your performance indicators that, that make you comfortable that they actually will support your business properly. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, just go back to using your cousin for the free website. <laughs> no, and to build upon that too, Brad, when you brought it up, I thought about this. It's not just using somebody that that understands a legal space, but using someone too that that understands your practice area and the specific questions and needs that fall within that area as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. All right, Scott. So that really wraps up those top five stupidest mistakes firms make when they're they're hoping to build a better business. Scott, thinking about everything that you talked about today, is there really like one big takeaway that firms can run with and say, this is what I need to do tomorrow to really take a step in the right direction? I'd say avoid all of those things. But, but <laughs> There I mean, you go. That's an easy answer. A, a, a few of them revolved around accurate billing. And, and proper time capture. That, that's a basic building block of building a strong practice that's going to drive revenue and net income for you as an owner. So I would start with and prioritize proper billing practices. Mm-hmm. So, Scott, thank you again for being here. When you asked to be on the show again, I felt like I couldn't tell you no anyway. So, <laughs> you know, thanks welcome. for being here. Scott, you are always welcome on the show. <laughs> Just kidding. No, it was good to have you. It was actually a really good conversation. You know, we've talked a lot about articles and trends surrounding cybersecurity and COVID, and those are super relevant, obviously, but there's just so much, I think, from a foundational perspective that we can learn still and kind of take those baby steps to get us in a better place really quickly. So it was a good conversation. Thank you, Scott, for being here. Well, Lexicon exists to help lawyers make more money. So (laughs) if we can get the message out that there are just some simple things you can do and and be more profitable, grow your firm faster— We want them to do that. Whether they use Lexicon or not, we want law firms to succeed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's what we're here for. So, all right, guys, thanks for tuning in today and check us out next time on another episode of The Lex Factor. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to The Lex Factor. Lexicon takes care of business so you can take care of law. Learn how to build a better practice at lexiconservices.com.